You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking to Glauber Costa, an experienced database implementer who's worked on two different high-performance databases, first ScyllaDB and now Terso, after a decade of working on the Linux kernel itself. We talk about database performance at the scale of millions of reads per second, how hardware changes have affected the trade-offs around relational and NoSQL databases, and what actually is big data. And now, implementing databases. All right, Glover, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. So I saw you on a previous podcast talking about how you gave this example of Netflix had been achieving a million reads a second using an entire Cassandra cluster. And with ScyllaDB, you'd achieved a million reads a second using one instance, not an entire cluster, which is very impressive to me. And one thing I've always wondered about sort of implementations like that is, <laughs> for lack of a better term, how do you do that? Like, does it come down to just looking at lower level operating system primitives and being like, how do I make the best possible use of the hardware, given the primitives that the OS exposes to me? Or are there like caching tricks? Or I mean, what would you say is sort of the the thing that allowed you to do that with Scylla that Cassandra was not able to do? The former and story that repeats itself uh, a lot and a lot. So I can go in, in, in more details, but just to, yeah, let's do to it. start just start with a couple of examples that like we're not unique or at Scylla, we were not unique or even at Turso today, we have, I think we have a similar story. You would all see like that there is, there is something in common with all of those companies, implementations, uh, products, uh, projects, uh, a couple of projects that I can uh, quote as an example. One of them that I like very much uh, that's uh, near and dear to a lot of people today is Bun. So uh, when, when I look at Bun, I see a lot of parallels to what we've done uh, at ScyllaDB which is essentially like, hey, there is a community of folks here that are very bright people, extremely bright people in what they do, but they don't necessarily know, like they don't have like top knowledge of very up-to-date knowledge in, in systems programming. So if you put a system persons to do this, like what kind of things would you do differently? And then if you do those things differently, what can you achieve? Again, the story, the story of Bun uh, is very similar to that. It's essentially Jared obsessing about like a performance details on things like and using node does one way, uh, you're not going to do a one-to-one. -one. You're going to look at the problem and say, hey, well, given the, the primitives that are available, right? Th those people that were uh, specialists in their domain, but not specialists in systems programming, they've done it in one way. Can we do it in a different way? Another example that I love uh, is Red Panda, uh, which is a uh, essentially a re-implementation of Kafka in C++ using the same framework, using the same I.O. library that we created for Scylla called Sistar. There is another company uh, which I consider to be, again, even though I run a database company today, I consider it to be the craziest and most innovative database company uh, around today, which is Tiger Beetle. You look at Tiger Beetle, they have a lot of the same things that we had at Scylla and, and, and a lot of the same some new techniques, some different things, but the same spirit, right? Tiger Beetle, I would, I, I would say that they, they actually go even further beyond in terms of that level of like taking control of the hardware. It, it, it really boils down to this, like I'm going to look at what, it's, it's actually not even at the operating system. A lot of the things that we've done at Scylla and a lot of the things that the Red Panda as a consequence does, because since they use the same IO library, uh, Tiger Beetle, Bun, I'm not that familiar, probably not, but like it's really bypassing the operating system. The operating system is a general purpose construct. One example, uh, and this one I know it's I, I, this one I know it's in Scylla, Red, Red Panda, and Tiger Beetle. They all do uh, in common, which is you don't use the operating system page cache. 
right? That was one of the things. And 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 why why is that? So every time you read something, the operating system gives you this very beautiful and easy to use abstraction, right? Every time you read something from from a file, uh, it can either be in memory or it can be uh, in storage. As a programmer, uh, people are used to like I just map the file and I read it from memory. If it's not in memory, the operating system kernel will evict something, will take this page out, and will bring my page back in. I don't have to worry about it. I can I can access a terabyte file in a two hundred gigabyte RAM DRAM machine. I'm fine. Again, Tiger Beetle, Scylla, uh, and Red Panda. None of them rely on the page cache. The first thing that all of those databases do is like, don't use it. And then what you do is that is that you ha- you use other primitives. And, and this is why like I think it's it's deeper than just the OS primitives. Yes, the OS has a primitive to read from a file directly without bypassing the page cache. So what is that? I mean, you, like you you f open with certain not not open just open with certain parameters, or it's a completely different API. And the the API at, 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 at the API at our time uh, at Scylla was actually quite hard to use. Not quite hard to use in the sense that like uh, it's hard to program with, but there were so many corner cases and caveats that you needed to be aware of. That it's called IO submit. So if you go. Again, I'm not going to have the link. Maybe I can try to find it uh, and give you before the publication of the podcast. But there was one post on Stack Overflow that I loved. That I would always refer people to of the caveats and and like things you have to be aware to use IO submit. And there's so much stuff, uh, <laughs> file alignment, and then like the some file systems don't have good support for that. And then if you do this, it becomes synchronous and it blocks everything. Now you have IO your ring, which is I understand uh, it's what Tiger Beetle is using, which is essentially allows you to do direct IO as well, which is like the thing that bypasses the page cache without most of the, uh, in, you know, the complications of IO submit. I actually still remember when I was uh, in the Linux kernel, uh, this did not exist. The kernel did not give you a primitive to bypass the page cache. If you want to read a file, that's what you get. Uh, it was actually Oracle. I can't remember. Linus, Linus Torvalds hated, by the way. Uh, he, he absolutely hated it. He said, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want it in the kernel, etc. Essentially, huh. uh, essentially, those engineers that were pushing the support one, which is, by the way, very interesting because lots of people have this idea that Linus is just this guy that is highly opinionated and never accepts anything that he doesn't like. I mean, it's patently false. Uh, I've seen many, this being one of them, I've seen many instances of somebody coming up with something Linus Torvalds saying there is no way this is ever going to be in the kernel, and then one year later this is in the kernel, <laughs> right? Just, uh, so I mean, this happens a lot, uh, and, and this was one of the things like oh, direct in the beginning wasn't really something uh, the community was very excited about. Best of my knowledge, that actually came from Oracle, uh, exactly for usage in databases. If you didn't have that, what you had to do is essentially open the block device without a file system, which is much more complicated. The kernel interface is nice because it allows you to open the file and still operate with file systems and files and, and whatnot, but have direct block access to the files. Say, I don't want to deal with the Linux page cache. I don't want to do any of that. Just like if I read 10 bytes from this file, give me those 10 bytes from that position, and I don't care about anything else. Don't optimize, don't coalesce, don't page cache, don't do anything. But the reason this is, again, deeper than just you know bypass the, the, the OS is that the page cache is there for a reason. The page cache is there because memory is still faster to access the storage, so so even at the NVMe level. So if you do this, you are forced to write your own cache. But the reason the reason writing your own cache is better is not because now you have a cache, because again, you, you had a cache before. 
<laughs> the Linux yeah. page cache. So it's not like oh, you're caching tricks. Like the reason having your own cache is better for those situations is that if I need to go to storage and read 10 bytes to serve a request, I will go to storage and I will read 10 bytes to serve a request. Uh, if the Linux page cache, it goes deeper than that, but just to keep things simple, if the Linux page cache essentially goes and optimizes, it goes there and, and brings your page to memory, two things happen. First of all, you have no control over which page gets evicted to make room for yours. And maybe there's data in that page that you want to keep around because it's, uh, for example, it's data that you know. And, and yes, the, there, is a, there is an eviction algorithm, but the, you have more information as the database, as the application, than the kernel does. The kernel is looking this from the point of view of, you know, as a general purpose page thing. They don't have any semantic information about the application. And second, like they need to evict those, evicting is actually easy, but then they need to read four kilobytes, the entire four kilobytes, into memory to serve 10 bytes. You end up, in, in the case of something like Cassandra, for example, they have things organized in partition keys that are arbitrary. Like the partition key is essentially a hash. In one page, you have a lot of keys that have nothing to do with each other. So you're bringing things to memory, like you're bringing things to the cache that have no spatial locality with the key that you read. If you come now with all the information that, oh, I know what I know what's in this cache, I'm going to go and I'm going to bypass the operating system. And, I, and when I need to cache it, I will cache it my way. Man, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> of work. Like it took years. It took years. You think it's like, oh, it's a three-month project, six-month project. It is a six-month project. You have something that works, but it, it actually took years for the Scylla cache to actually be good. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, it's worth it. From the get-go, we already had better performance, but then, then you have like performance with a bunch of corner cases and you have performance, you know, uh, it took years for us to be able to smooth out a, a, a lot of those things. Again, uh, I'm sure uh, Red Panda does the same, Tiger Beetle does the same. Uh, so th those are all, uh, this is this is the kind of stuff that you need to do, right, to get this kind of performance. That's wild. I So I would have guessed, I mean, just naively, not, <laughs> not having talked to you about this, that a big part of the performance would have been uh, difference would have just been well Cassandra's written in Java and so that means that they have the overhead of like the garbage collector and probably more boxing and stuff like that but I don't know how much they do like CFFI I mean it sounds like if they wanted to do this I'm, I'm assuming Java doesn't have any primitives for what you're talking about you would have to drop down and to use some sort of CFFI from Java to, to do all that but is that is that like the overhead of Java is that a significant factor there as well uh, I think less than what we talked about at Scylla, I think at the time we talked a lot about this, so it doesn't have garbage collection. But I think it's it's not false, right? It's not like a, have you ever, as an example, have you ever seen like people saying that you should, uh, if you want to lose weight, uh, you should build muscle because if you have more muscle, your body uses up more energy. So at rest, you're actually like, it, right. this is yeah, not Increase false. your basal, basal metabolic rate. Yeah, I've heard This that. is not false. But when you go do the math, like you gain a lot of muscle, your body spends like 30 calories more a day. <laughs> like uh, nothing, right? So this, it still works because it puts you like uh, lifting weights is good. So, you know, if you do that, it's good for you. But it's not for the reason that you're saying, like, which is, again, but it helps you explain a concept. So I think the garbage collection thing in Java is about the same. It has impacts. Most of those impacts are actually not in read performance. You can get great read performance uh, with a garbage collected language. The effects of garbage collection were always a lot more on your tail latencies than in read performance. They are unpredictable and they can happen at any time and you don't control like when and how they happen. But for example, 
this thing that I just described of the operating system going and fetching a page and bringing it to disk, et cetera, has way more impact on your daily latency than garbage collection. Huh, wow. Of course, because like, think about it. Garbage collection may take you for a couple of, I don't know. It obviously depends because uh, Java has some pretty bad problems or uh, although no, I understand it's a lot better today. Reading something from storage, it's also getting better. It, it, you have to keep in mind that we started this like 10 years ago, right? <laughs> right. Reading something from storage can take a lot more uh, than than just a garbage collection pause. So if you're doing this all the time and you know if your workload trashes on that, it also has a bigger impact. You started talking about reads, but like Cassandra was known to be uh, when when we started Scylla as a write machine, right? So first of all is that people never chase that too much. Like it's not that read performance was not important, but Cassandra was re- was understood to be a database for write intensive workloads. So our our write performance was better than Cassandra's as well. But not by like the delta was not that crazy, right? Just the, so so first of all, I think that they had not tried to achieve this kind of performance because they were plenty happy with like oh you know just a, this is interesting because if you dig deep enough, which is like the if you're an outsider, sometimes you see things better than the insiders because the insiders come with like with five years or more of like oh it's a right machine, it's a right machine, it's a right machine, but people do read from it. So we read a benchmark like this of like Netflix using like five hundred machines, and it's like wait a second, like wh- why? <laughs> As the insider, you don't necessarily see it, right? But I think one of the factors was just this. I mean, they were they, they saw themselves as essentially like a write machine. Cassandra was really bad when we started. Again, all, all of that, I'm sure it's, it's, it's better today. And I, I don't track that that closely. They were really bad in CPU utilization. Past like four, eight cores, something like that. Uh, your machine would essentially be idle most of the time. Like there was nothing you could potentially do to get those CPUs to 100%. And again, they would claim it doesn't matter because we're a storage system and this is an IO-bound workload anyway, which was false. Uh, and it was false because you had very fast NVMEs now. You know, 10 years ago was when NVMEs started to become popular. And this idea uh, of the IO-bound system with a spinning disk that's going to take two seconds to respond to a query anyhow was no longer true because of that. The system were, were CPU very inefficient in the use of CPU, and it has I, I think it had nothing to do. You know, Java plays a role, but it's not the most important role. So it was a very inefficient system. We employed all of those tricks, you know, in terms of caching, in terms of memory utilization, in terms of those OS primitives, to the point that look, performance was just mind blowing. That's really interesting. It reminds me of like there seemed to be a lot of. History repeating themselves, I guess, instances like this, where you start off with people design a particular program or, or system around hardware constraints of that time. And then over time, what's actually important in terms of hardware constraints shifts. So yeah, like spinning magnetic disks being really slow to do IO compared to today's NVMe being a good example of that. But other examples just being like network speeds. I mean, at the beginning of the internet, it was like you would go visit a static website with just like HTML content and like two images on it. And you could just watch the images come in bit yeah. by bit in real time over <laughs> the course of several yeah. seconds. Yeah. Right. And so in that world, it's like, you would never think of like putting a, like a 4k video on a website like that. You would just I'd be like, you would well, just download it. It's going to take a couple hours anyway. So, <laughs> and so what's possible just kind of changes. And then, but also at that time you had, I was I was talking about this in a a talk I gave a while back around like static and dynamic typing, but in that world, the fact that you didn't have a compile step because I mean also I guess like machines were slower and stuff like that 
meant that you know you could like when you're working locally get this sort of fast feedback loop and your production performance it's like who cares everyone's waiting multiple seconds for this page anyway you know what's another couple hundred milliseconds uh to <laughs> to like create the html on the fly whereas now that and, and of course websites weren't serving nearly as much traffic as they are today or, or a lot of them but this are. is central part of why we started my current company which right? so is just um at my current company uh, we essentially have sqlite for networked use cases oh so this is a this is a relational database yes yes exactly. oh, i didn't know that yeah. okay yeah, it's a relational database. There's another company like ours that has a very similar thesis, which is Mother Duck. The guys that are doing like DuckTB. DuckTB, like they say they're SQLite for analytics. I say I'm SQLite for SQLite, right? So, <laughs> and, That's a good and, line. <laughs> and, but the, the thesis is the same. The th- like, and if you, if you remember, like uh, that famous kids these days listening to the podcast may not remember, but Mongo had this thing, I, and I love that they did it, like, this guy on the internet started making fun of Mongo for and, and created the, the mocking phrase Mongo is web scale. Right? I remember and making that. Yeah, fun yeah. of this. Every, everybody wanted to be web scale and what does that even mean? But uh, and again, the thing I, lo- I love that Mongo did is that they actually put this on a t shirt. I've been to conferences with MongoDB people that they were using a t shirt with that <laughs> character saying MongoDB oh, wow. is web scale. I said, You guys just earn my, you know, my fandom forever because uh, it's, it's super, <laughs> that's, the, that's the right attitude. But if you remember how things were at, at the time, like if you had a couple of gigabytes of data, let's say a hundred gigabytes of data, you're what you are web scale. <laughs> which, yeah, I mean, which today is funny because it's like, oh, so you have 5% of a, of a hard drive in your laptop. Great. Exactly. <laughs> right. Same thing for processing power because you had people with like two CPUs, four CPUs. Yeah. And that's it. That's the kind of harder that you could get. And, you know, just to, you could get other, like v- scaling vertically was very hard and it would stop in practice a lot earlier. Like, I, I, again, I still remember uh, the Linux kernel. The first thing, I think it was around 2005, more or less, when l- the Linux started to support more than one processor. Uh, and there was this thing called the big kernel lock. The big kernel lock was essentially a big lock. Every time you go into the kernel, you take the big kernel lock. So it essentially means like nothing else, the kernel would only ever run one thing at the same time, right? If you want, you want to access a file in a file system, big kernel lock. Like so, so the way the way Linux acquired multiprocessor support was essentially through the big kernel lock. Uh, and then we spent the next 10 years removing the big kernel lock. Essentially like, okay, like, let's, find, let's find this one thing that is very important with my, I don't even remember what it was. So let, let just for the sake of the example, accessing a directory. Okay, so now let's uh, put granular locks uh, in the directory structure. And now you don't need to take the big kernel lock. You take this other lock. Uh, but then like, the, the, the kernel community took 10 years to get rid of the big kernel lock. More than that, uh, to get rid of all of it, I think some 10 years to get rid of it for you know everything that mattered. You wouldn't scale, like your operating system wouldn't scale beyond that anyhow. I had no idea that was such a huge project just to, to make oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Removing, yeah. removing removing the big kernel lock uh, was it, it, it was a decade long work. Uh, just the amount of work in Linux. When I started doing Linux seriously, it was already much better. So you know, I, I didn't get like the the very beginning, but 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 I was uh, a Linux enthusiast at the time, and I knew about the big kernel lock and, and all of that. But so I mean, two four CPUs is what you could have in practice. So you had to horizontally scale like there's no other way i'm trying to remember i I feel like the pentium three or four was the first like consumer level 
multi-core processor. I'm feeling old and also disappointed in myself Pentium, for not remembering. Pentium I remember seeing was advertisements. Was it four? I don't know if you could get Pentium four multi-core. Probably not. If I, again, don't. I, I, I remember seeing memory... ads in physical magazines for. I thought it was Pentium four that had that had two cores, and it was like, yeah, it has two CPU cores. I'm like, what is that? Well, wow. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, I thought it was around four area, but maybe not. But but again, just just to finish the example, that's an example of things changing. Uh, and then you change the way you do things because like uh, what happened in the past couple of years, you have essentially extremely fast NVMe devices. Those extremely fast NVMe devices have terabytes of data and you can run this on VMs with like uh, 30 CPUs like easily on a click of a button. And then that's that's fine. You don't need horizontal scaling as much as you needed before. And it just, it's just not the thing. You can you can run things and because the workloads did not scale that much. I mean, so, some workloads did. There are still the workloads that uh, sensor data and, and, and all of that. That still grows exponentially. But a lot of the other workloads, are, they grow, but not they do not grow as fast as, as the hardware underneath uh-huh. them. So our thesis is like, hey, look, I just use SQLite. Uh, and then again, SQLite is, has a, a bunch of disadvantages that it, it is file-based. It doesn't, you, you can't really, it's very hard to backup. It's, it's hard to like move to another machine is if you have four different API servers accessing the same database, you can't because it's just a file. Uh, so Truth essentially solves all of those problems, but underlying and, and allows you to use SQLite in production. But underlying this is this thesis that why would you want to do this in the first place? And you would want to do this in the first place because the hardware situation is so different than than it was like uh, when this first, this database first came out, right? Yeah, because I remember talking to a friend who had worked at Google on, I don't remember exactly what, I think it was Maps maybe, something that was like, had a ton of data flowing through it. And I was asking him for some advice on scaling a very much not Google-sized data set, but we were still having, it was big enough that we were having production problems with MySQL and trying to figure out how to solve them. And his recommendation was, look, just go directly to DynamoDB or something schemaless because mm-hmm. you're just going to end up there anyway. He's like, honestly, I don't even bother starting a new project in a relational database because they're just too slow once you get past a certain point. But I wonder, is that, well, A, was that ever true in your opinion? Or And, and B, is that still true today or or is it that like something has changed to make that not true? I think it was true. I, I posted on Twitter the other day, like uh, this thing, oh, you needed that kind of scale in 2010. And then some person just replied with like need in quotation marks saying like you never implying that you never really needed this, but you did. I mean, and of course, people, as it's the norm in tech, People overreact to stuff, right? So the, the same thing as microservices. A percentage of people who were doing microservices did not need to do microservices. Of course, that is true. Uh, and a percentage of people reaching out for those NoSQL databases did not need to do this, of course. But I think the majority of people doing it did need. You gave your an example yourself. You had problems with, with MySQL and, and, and then like it just wasn't working anymore and you were going to reach out. And then the advice of your friend is that like a, you know you're going to end up in, in, in that situation anyway. Again, why? Because you don't actually need to hit that much scale to start seeing those problems. So anything that is production quality at that time, because there is a mismatch and the workloads and the data sets are big enough in comparison to the size of the hardware, let's say eight out of 10, I'm making this number up, <laughs> don't, don't quote me, or, but like let's say eight out of 10 people that are running a production product will need that kind of scale. So start. So the advice is sound. Start with that. Just a why you know you're going to end up there anyway. Why not? 
the thesis is that things changed and and what changes exactly that the rate the rate of growth for those two variables the underlying hardware and the workload the underlying growth curve for the hardware is much stronger and faster than the workloads so i am about to bet that if you could have go back in time if you could go back in time and run the same workload on a RAID 5 array of NVMEs with uh, 32 CPUs on a modern Linux kernel, you would have done it this way with MySQL just fine. Like, just fine. No, not a problem, right? And this kind of hardware was like super expensive at the time. It was the kind of like super computing kind of hardware, like 32 cores. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's nothing today. Right? That is that is the change. Right? So now, I mean, it sounds like sort of to, to zoom all the way out, it sounds like basically... 10 years ago, if you wanted to use a relational database on anything that was getting a really serious, let's say, you know, millions of hits or whatever uh, worth of traffic, you were going to potentially run into scaling problems that would lead you to say, actually, we need to get rid of our relational database or, or parts of it in some pathways and replace them with some NoSQL no thing. Whereas today, you don't think that's true. It's, it seems like today, yeah. I can guarantee you they can do a million uh, reads per second on SQLite. As I said, which is why I'm doing Turso, right? Well, well, not not literal <laughs> SQLite, right? I mean, because no, that's well, no, no, you can, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go with SQLite, you can read a million per second on SQLite just fine. There is a blog post from a couple of guys from uh, Expensify that they they also run SQLite in production, and in that post, they were doing four million reads a second on SQLite. Uh, that's all in the one file. <laughs> absolutely. Wow, no, no, no problem. Okay, I, I mean, mean I, again. They had to build. They had to build a lot of infrastructure to actually run this in a production setting. That is exactly what Turso wants to solve. Because yes, we're only talking about performance here. You can do four million, but now you have all of those problems. How do I back up this file? What if the hardware dies? And like all of that, right? So Turso is solving that. But the solution, we're not improving the performance of SQLite. We've done zero work to improve the performance of SQLite. The work is to make it production ready. And millions a second, right? That was the benchmark back then. That was like, wow, it's impressive. Like, I think today in, in, in any modern hardware, with a, you know, with the right work, obviously caveats here, it's not for all workloads. There are going to be workloads that are heavier and et cetera. But you find workloads that you can hit millions of reads per second in SQLite. That's fine. This is all kind of reshaping my worldview around SQLite. Or, and also, by the way, I have to tell you this, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to have to burden you with this, but now you're going to have to know what I'm about to tell you forever. I listened to a podcast from the inventor of SQLite, and he pronounces it SQLite, like it's a mineral or something. And now whenever I think about it, I always think, oh, is it, is it SQLite like I've always said it, or is it SQLite? My favorite, so first of all, it's just the... This is gonna be with us forever. Nobody knows, right? <laughs> right. Is it, is it MySQL or is it my MySQL? Like uh, the pronunciation that I like the most is the one that the Primogen uses. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the with the guy, but he, no, he just calls what it is that? squeal. <laughs> right. So I, I actually think it's the best. I, I don't use it in all podcasts or like in any appearances because you know people are more familiar with either SQL, uh, SQL or SQL. But I, I, I actually find squeal light and leave squeal, which is our fork, <laughs> just the best pronunciation. <laughs> My squeal, yeah. My squeal, yeah. Just a... Nice. Partially, I'm curious, why did you choose to build on SQLite as opposed to like Postgres or MySQL? But I mean, immediately, my first thought is, 
Well, that'd be my way squeal. more convenient for, for my, my squeal, my, my mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my first thought would be, I mean, as a developer, like running it locally, that would be awesome. Like just having a little one, one file on my machine, you don't have to like spin up some stateful thing. It's just like, no, no, no. You know, is Postgres running right now? Is it, you know, it's like, no, no, no. There's just a file and that's it. That's and then right. that sounds great. And then if I could also get that in production, that also sounds great. Having said that, there's a whole bunch of features that Postgres especially has that SQLite doesn't. And I wonder if that, is that a helpful design constraint for you in terms of like what you're building or what's the, how does that interact? First of all, it's obviously true. There's a lot of features that SQLite doesn't have that Postgres and MySQL have. The bet that we have is that lots of people don't need those features, right? Just, uh, it's, it's just, uh, and when, when you think of a lot of the, especially of the transactional Look at Mother Duck, like Mother Duck, as I mentioned, like they have the same thesis. Like if you go read the story of Mother Duck, Jordan saying, yeah, he was uh, doing analytics before uh, in the big data space. And he noticed that a lot of people ask for big data. We had a, like Scylla was a big data company. We had a customer that had 50 gigabytes of data. Using Scylla was still justified. Their read volume was fairly high, right? So they, they you know, just, uh, it, it's fine. And there were a lot of things about the database that, you know, just uh, it made sense. But when you look at the data set itself, it was like 50 gigabytes. Most of our other customers, it would start on the 300 terabytes. Right? So just that, that was an outlier, uh, which is why I remember, because it was such, a, such an outlier that I'll never forget. And they had a lot of issues as well, but mostly because the, the queries are, were very complex and had very stringent uh, needs. But Jordan claims that, he started to notice in his big data company that a lot of people who reach for big data didn't actually have big data. Now, they thought they had big data. And it's funny because, look, I now, when, when I'm ex- talking to develop Turso is mostly adopted by today, like web developers and like the developers who would otherwise, like the, the kind of like the Rails crowd, the Next.js crowd and et cetera. And, and sometimes they come with this question, like I've heard that SQLite is not very good for writes. And I have an application that is very write heavy. Can I still use SQLite? And in the beginning, I said no. But then I developed because you know we want to be honest uh, about the techn- the constraints and etc. But I developed I developed over time the habit of asking them, uh, "What do you mean by write heavy?" And ah. then they say, "We have writes almost every second." <laughs> said, right. okay, that's fine <laughs> so just that you, you you can use there so that that's fine 100 percent, no problem right because again in the Scylla world our write heavy workloads started at 10 million writes per second right these chaos are, are are so different that when when you change worlds and so so i think that the Lots of people move from this relational world, which is the world where most developers come from. And then they have like this data set with 100 gigabytes. They have a couple of thousand users per second. Uh, and they think this is big data. But like, the, and in their minds it is because it's already bigger than maybe other things that they've done in the past. But like when, when, you, when you go to the actual big data world, this is not big data, right? Just the big data for me starts in the hundred of terabytes. Like, uh, you know, even, even a terabyte, not big data. If you really want to say, look, just uh, let's be conservative and start sooner. Like the, the minimum place that will put the threshold is on 50 terabytes. Like if you have less than 50 terabytes, you have the small data, right? So just uh, it, it's, uh, so he realized that and then figured, hey, look, I've just, uh, 
and, and most people don't have 50 terabytes, by the way. They may have 100 gigabytes. And if you have 100 gigabytes, do it in a file locally. That, that's the idea behind their stuff. And just a, it's a similar idea in, in that sense that, look, Postgres has all of those features and, some, and they're amazing. Go for it. If you need them, like I'm not going to go on a debate of like, oh, you know, but, but most people just don't. Yeah, I mean, that certainly matches with my experience and my career doing web development. I mean, I like Postgres. I think it's cool. But when I kind of look back and like, what were the problems that I had with databases? Almost always it came down to works fine on my machine, but in production, we're seeing problems. And it wasn't really like there's a feature missing. It's like I had no problem implementing this at the scale of, you know, the, the data set on my laptop. But then or or maybe we started needing to do some queries where the old queries performance was fine. But as soon as we wanted to add this one extra twist on the query, now all of a sudden the performance is terrible. And if we just add one index, that doesn't fix it. I definitely remember thinking for a long time, and it'll be interesting to see if maybe someday this won't be true anymore, but I would always feel like, you know, if there's a problem with some performance of some website or some web app, almost always the answer was, or turned out to be, there's an index missing somewhere in the database. There's an index missing. That's right. It's just a 90%. <laughs> that was yeah, right. It, yeah. Almost always. But at the same time, I also knew that sort of intellectually, although I never actually really saw this come up in practice, but if in theory, if you add too many indices willy-nilly, just like slathering them all over the place, right. then your writes slow down and stuff like that. I never actually worked anywhere where I saw that become a problem in practice, but it was something I was kind of aware of. So it's like, well, don't don't just use that as the hammer to solve everything. You know, think a little bit more about it than that. But I do, I kind of understand where people are coming from and thinking, hey, I have a write-heavy workload, even though from your perspective, you're like, that's not, <laughs> that's, that's so far on the other end of the spectrum. It's not even a, a problem because- like you said, I mean, there's an element of it's it's relative to your own experience, but also there's an element of I don't know what I don't know. I know yeah, that exactly, like, yeah. you know, I, I'm building this thing and I know that I could have these problems in the future. Uh, so I know there's like the, there's sort of a danger sign, but it doesn't really tell me anything more than that. It's like yeah. I, I've heard no, about that, that's exactly I think that is why I like the story that Jordan tells so much, because uh, it's a lot of people that don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Uh, and then thinking like they reach out for a big data solution when you as a big data expert looks into that to say, look, can my, you're never going to say no to a customer. So you're not going to turn this customer down. <laughs> but, but you know that, look, you don't need that much. You actually, again, the system that we have is designed for a thousand more than that for starters. Yeah. Right. So just uh, it's, it, that allows you to rethink a lot of the things that, again, we're doing the same thing with, with SQLite. It's essentially a way of saying, look, what can we do? What can we do that is cool with SQLite? If we use SQLite as a basis, is that enough for a lot of modern workloads? Yes. But then, what can I offer in return? And what can I offer in return is a database that is extremely affordable uh, in comparison to Postgres. Uh, we can offer, like, uh, if you go on our website, uh, we can offer ten thousand databases for twenty nine dollars a month. No other provider will offer you this many databases. You can have like maybe five databases, like a we just go and give you 10,000 because every database is just a file uh, at the end of the day. So like, yeah, create files, just boom. You have a total amount of storage, but you don't have a limit of essentially databases. People think, by the way, that 10,000 files is yet another example uh, of those orders of magnitude things in, 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 in display. People think that 10,000 files is bad because, you know, it's going to overload the kernel and the kernel is going to have problems with 10,000 files. I can guarantee you the Linux kernel does not have a problem with 10,000 files. 
Like uh, you, you, you can, you what, can, you can what have do you mean? You have to set of, your limit higher, and you know. Yeah. yeah. Again, you you have you have old defaults there, right? Sure. Uh, so sure, and and this old default will give you the impression that going over a couple of thousands is bad, but I can guarantee you that the Linux kernel can handle uh, millions of files just fine, right? Just uh, with with without breaking a sweat. At Scylla, one of the things we did when we installed Scylla, we set the U limit in the machine to eight hundred thousand. Uh, yeah, just we... you know, just. Uh... <laughs> I mean, on my my development machines, I always it's it's like a ritual. Like eventually, I run into a U limit problem, and then I just look up what's the highest thing I can set U limit to, and then I run yeah. that command <laughs> once, and then I never think about it ever again. It's always yeah, been fine. most of, most of those things are not a problem anymore. I mean, they, they're still there, but they're not a problem. Uh, just the. Uh, Files being files, number of processes, and etc. Like when I when I started, the year that I started getting interested in the Linux kernel was the year that the new scheduler at the time, like it was famously everybody was talking about like the O1 scheduler, the O1 scheduler uh, set you to arrive in the 2.6 version of the kernel, because before that the, the Linux the, the Linux scheduler was I don't recall it was definitely not more than linear, but I don't know if it was linear. Or something bad, but sublinear. But let's say linear. You know, my memory may be betraying me. But essentially, what that means is that if you double the number of processes, the time to switch to a new process also doubles. And then, like at some point, your machine grinds to a halt. And then, in the kernel 2.6, this was replaced with the at, at the time famous uh, O1 scheduler, which essentially means that it takes the same time to pick a process, regardless of the number of processes you have. So you can have 10 billion processes, uh, and then you can have memory issues by keeping those processes in memory. But like the time to pick a process doesn't change. Uh, and, and funny enough, that, that's a discussion that I would never forget because at the time I was studying computer science in university, uh, and somebody came up with a new design of the scheduler that was eventually accepted and it was shown to be better, but it had a higher asymptotic behavior, right? Uh, it, was, it was a logarithmic uh, scheduler. And then lots of people that are clueless, and Linux has a lot of this as well. People just fall on the sidelines, commenting. It was essentially our version of Twitter at the time, like the Linux kernel <laughs> mailing list. Like a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about, just trying to participate in the discussion. I will never forget that because, again, I was interested. I was a computer science student at the time. I was studying those things. And I, I could see in front of my eyes, like this very high level discussion of like, yes, yes, I am saying that the scheduler, which has a higher asymptotical complexity, it's actually faster than this one that is all one. Right. And here are the benchmarks, and it is faster. In practice, you don't have a trillion processes. Uh, like, so you, you, how many processes you have? So what, what the, it, the asymptotic behavior does not matter. Like, what, what matter is the behavior in, in, in the production conditions. Uh, so, I mean, I, I learned so much in, in, in Linux. Uh, having started my career in Linux was probably one of the first thing, the best things that happened to me. Yeah, at the time, people were had those concerns of a number of processes. Had to be under four thousand. You have the you know you had those limits, but in practice today, Linux can essentially do however many processes you want. I think there's a four billion limit because uh, you want to represent it with a thirty-two bit integer uh, or or something of the sort. Uh, but but you you know just do- doesn't matter. Wow. Yeah, I uh, I've had a similar experience with sort of being surprised about hash maps, which are famously like you know O of one constant time lookups. But, and I've been trying to understand why oftentimes like a linear search will just outperform that in practice and depending on the, obviously the data set. But one of the things I eventually sort of finally realized is that, well, kind of the point of the hash map is to 
distribute things around whatever the sort of backing array is. And so basically, if you're you get no cache locality out of that. In fact, that it's almost cache locality defeating. So every single lookup is going to be a cache miss unless you get pretty lucky. It, once you, the hash map exceeds a certain size, as opposed to like, well, yes, th- this is a linear scan, but it's a linear scan that the CPU is amazing at in terms of like making sure everything you're looking at is in the memory. I would not have done this comparison for hash map because the first, it could be just me because the first thing that comes to mind when you say hash map is actually a decent size set. Right, but the oh, okay. uh, link like a really big, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but, but sure, I mean you are tech, you are technically right. But the example I always use was linked lists. People say, "Oh, a linked list has a O one insertion in the middle of the list." I said, "Dude, if you knew how fast your CPU can just copy half of this array to a new memory location, <laughs> right? Put there just it doesn't like doesn't matter. Copying a bunch of memory is so fast that yeah, like it it, it it's 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 not linear." Right, uh, and and the complexity is is you know, it's not it's not constant. The complexity is linear, but in practice, for anything people use those data structures for, it's all in the CPU cache. And if you use the linked list, you're going to be trashing your CPU cache until you find the element. Should then go do a O1 insertion. So yeah, you have to take all of that into account. So funny you should mention that exact example. I don't know why I didn't think of that one because this has been on my mind recently, but I guess because so the hash map thing came up like we're making this compiler for a programming language and we're very performance conscious. And one of the scenarios that I've been sort of working on from a design perspective is thinking about, okay, we want to have like a watch mode that's designed to work well with editors. So if you just change one declaration in the middle of your file, like one of your you know functions, let's say, we want to be able to try and just redo the work for that function without redoing everything around it. And one of the challenges with this is, well, okay, how do you sort of keep redoing those things without leaking memory, but while also keeping things as contiguous in memory as possible? And an idea that I came up with, have not tried yet, but was basically, okay, let's say that we have all the memory for all of your declarations laid out contiguously in memory. And every time you change one of them, let's say it's in the middle, what we do is literally we just say, okay, I'm going to make a new arena that, that holds all of this. I'm going to copy everything from before the old definition in there then copy in the new definition and then copy after the, everything after the old definition. When you say that out loud, it's like, well, that's a lot of work. That's linear in the size of your whole module, you know, your file, whatever. That sounds like it's going to be a lot of work. But A, it's very simple. I mean, it's it's a really like that's that's super simple design. And B, my, uh, my bet is that if it works out, it's going to turn out to be that the, all of that copying, even though it sounds like a lot of work, is going to be basically trivial, especially when you consider that, well, the alternative is if you don't want to leak memory and you do want to make sure that all of your accesses continue to be as contiguous as possible, you're just going to have to redo the entire file every single time somebody changes something. It seems like a, a potentially very good middle ground where it's a simple design. It minimizes the actual hard work, which is the like analysis of these things. And then Yes, you're doing a lot of <laughs> theoretically expensive copying, but in practice, actually, it'll be very, very fast. We'll see. Always boils down to the size of those things, right? Just to... Yeah, I mean, we're talking about like <laughs> files that are probably going to be like, what, like a couple thousand lines of code tops, yeah. right? Like it's not, it's not going to be that much. So going back to databases. Uh, so I know that there's like a variety of different storage strategies that databases will use for like different things. Like sometimes the index is based on a hash. Sometimes it's based on a tree, et cetera. I'm wondering if there have been any like relevant advances in those in terms of like how those basically how the databases sort of backing structures are used in memory. Or is that another case of just like, yeah, it's the same data structures we've always used. It's just the hardware has gotten better. Yeah, like that. Uh, so the, now let's see how strict 
the people listen to the podcast are going to be because uh, <laughs> uh, obviously I'm not going to claim that there were no advances, right? So like there there were data structure advances, but I feel like they're mostly incremental. Uh, okay. the, the one advance that I like a lot that I think is quite novel, but I don't actually know of any production database doing it. After I left Scylla, I joined Datadog for a year. Uh, I had a plan of staying for longer uh, in, in the data team there, but ended up having the opportunity with my co-founder to found So like, I actually experimented with that at Datadog and I didn't really see any good results. So it kind of dropped, which is learn indexes. Learn indexes essentially is a index that uh, it's an adaptive index to your workload in simple terms. Oh, interesting. But in, so in simple terms, is something that will allow you uh, to understand what the workload is uh, and then create an index that, again, in some, in some extreme cases can be extremely fast, right? Because it, it will try to create a representation in a model of your data set instead of just looking. Because, again, this is a fairly novel approach. And the approach the databases have is that, again, those data structures are handling, much like the discussion we had uh, of the Linux kernel page cache with just handling blindly pages, the database B3, there are two main classes of databases. Again, all of that broadly speaking. There are the databases that are based on LSM trees, and then the, the, the database that are based on B trees. Just talking about B trees uh, for, for the sake of the example, this B tree is blind to what it's indexing. Right? It's essentially like I'm indexing, I have a key and I'm indexing something. So the, the idea of the learned index is to try to create a statistical model of what your data actually is. One simple example is that like if your data is a bunch of integers, a bunch of sorted integers, if I know that, my index can essentially be a function. Like my index oh, yeah, can sure. be a function. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so you try to learn what your data actually is and create an, an, an index. And if, if it is a function, then I can access everything at a one, essentially, because, I, okay, you, you give me the key 10, I calculate where 10 is supposed That's to it, be. Right. Boom, Multiplication, right? done. Yeah. But I don't know of any database that actually uses that in, in, in production. Uh-huh. Certainly something uses, but none of the major players. Yeah, so it sounds like, I mean, I, I would guess, again, maybe naively, that that would be a significant improvement. But maybe it's just that, well, you know, again, all that matters is like, are, are you hitting the, <laughs> the cash yeah. or not? It could be that I'm just betraying myself in the sense that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a specialist in like specialized analytical databases. This sounds like something that, you know, analytical workloads would benefit more from. Uh, but like n none of your, you know, run-of-the-mill database, that if you're not a database expert, the databases that you can quote from memory, none of them will, will use this to the best of my knowledge. Got it. Well, and, and maybe it sounds like maybe there's a good reason for that. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, at, at the end of the day, I can tell you about my experience at Datadog. I mean, the, at Datadog, I mean, the data that I was handling, which is essentially time series when you look at the aggregate, because you, 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 one time series may have that, but like the data stores were handling a bunch of time series together. Just a, uh -huh. this aggregate of all time series essentially is random. <laughs> so I, I, I couldn't really do any better than 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 using okay, so, normal indexes. So maybe yeah. there might be some workloads or, or some database yeah, schemas exactly. where, where this helps more. Okay, that's fair enough. Got it. Very cool. Now, we've talked about a lot of interesting stuff. Anything else we should talk about uh, before we wrap up? One of the things that we talked in the podcast today, uh, you know, that's my shameless plug. 
uh, with my current startup, Turso, like the stuff that we're trying to do with SQLite. People who are interested, just go to turso.tech. We also have a Discord community, uh, a fairly active GitHub uh, repository as well. So always uh, excited to, to have people trying that. Nice. All right. Well, thanks so much for, for joining me. And uh, yeah, best of luck with Turso. Thanks a lot, Richard. Thank you.